Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're going to be doing a deep dive on the UK wine market. And our guest is Katie Keating, the managing director for Lay and Wheeler, which is one of the UK's oldest and most established fine wine merchants. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Happy to be here. I was hoping you give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and how it plays in with Lay and Wheeler. Sure. Probably start by saying that you can tell from my accent, I did not grow up, not from London, from the UK where I am now. Uh, I grew up on an organic farm in Pennsylvania outside of Philly. And I think that's where the story really begins, you know, from a place of agriculture, like all of the finest wines in the world. So when I got to Princeton for college, I brought some of that experience to campus. And I was able to co-found a farmer's market there. And I knew that food and wine were kind of an increasing interest of mine. And when graduation came around, uh, I went to, you know, considered accepting a job offer at a bank. And my dad was like, oh my, is that really what you want to do? And it was the perfect question for me at that time. And it really helped me think a bit differently about what I could do after college. And so I ended up applying to the Fulbright program to go to Italy. And at the same, I majored in French and Italian. And I also applied to go to Harvard Business School. And by some kind of crazy stroke of luck, both worked out. And on top of that, this was in 2008. So the height of, you know, beginning to be the height of the recession. So I moved to Italy to the Piedmont and was technically studying cheese, but definitely fell in love with the local wine, <laughs> Barberas and Longinebules. Not quite Barolos at that point, but inching there. And soon thereafter, after, when I wrapped up the Fulbright, I went to, straight to, to Harvard and started the MBA program. And I was really lucky in my second year, I was able to co-lead our Wine and Cuisine Society, which is actually a pretty serious club, as fun as it sounds. So we got to welcome the likes of Opus One, Chateau Margot, Dom Perignon, and, uh, and even things like uh, Chateau de Saint and Palmer to campus. And so I got amazing exposure to wine. And after business school in 2011, I followed my mentor, who was an MW student and who was at this wine startup called Lot 18. And she was also an HBS grad. I followed her there to actually help launch a food vertical for them. And it was a pretty tumultuous year. But in the process, I was able to embark on the WCT Level 3 program, which I loved, which is just a great kind of foundation in learning about wine. And then after when I left Lot 18 and moved to, to London, kind of get a change of scenery, get a change of pace. And I started working at a hospitality startup there. Pretty soon was really missing this world. And I decided to continue with the WSET and move into the diploma program and, and just really, really enjoyed it. Really loved studying wine more seriously. And that just happened to coincide with uh, around 2015, a mutual friend put me in touch with a man named Rowan Gormley, 
And that is more or less where the Leah Wheeler story begins and how our paths connected. So Rowan, you may have heard of him before. He founded Naked Wines, which has been an e-commerce business that's been growing a lot in the U.S. right now. But it was founded in England and wrote. So Rowan founded it. And then around 2014, 2015, Naked Wines, this growing e-commerce business merged with Majestic Wine, which is one of the leading wine retailers here in, in the UK. And so just to kind of give you a sense, so you've got Naked Wine, which is about a 75 million pound or $90 million business, an e-commerce business merging with Majestic Wine, which is about a 200 million pounds so or $235 million business with about 200 stores. And Majestic at the time owned this little tiny fine wine merchant called Lane Wheeler. And that's kind of, that was where our story begins. So, uh, but it's not, by the way, where Lane Wheeler's history begins. <laughs> so to introduce Lane Wheeler probably is most helpful to start with what it is that we do. We're a fine wine merchant. And what the heck is that? I mean, to a U.S., I think, base, that's a, an interesting thing in and of itself, a bit of a curiosity. So our history extends about three centuries. And in the U.K., there's no three-tier system. We're really lucky, I have to say. We buy wine directly from wine producers and then we sell it directly to private clients, private customers. And our model, I personally think is pretty cool. We sell fine wine, but we also will store it on our customers' behalf. We can broker it for them if they want to chop and change their collection a bit. We can also advise our customers on when to drink it or actually just what to do with it more generally. And we've more or less been doing that since we began. Although I, you know, I look back at our company archive, when we first started, we were bringing it over by barrel by ship, <laughs> bottling it by candlelight in our cellar, and then actually delivering things by horse and carriage, quite literally. So things have moved on quite a bit from that point in time. And maybe back then blending some wine from Spain or something else with like high-end French wines, so that was pretty common practice back in the day. Yeah, Way oh my God, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 for sure. I mean, I've read about this even going into the 70s. But yeah, I think the story of Lane Wheeler in and of itself is an interesting one, too. So just to give everyone a, a sense for the landscape and how we fit into it in the fine wine merchant space, we were founded in 1854. And so they're just a handful of fine wine merchants who are older than we are in the UK. So Barry Brothers and Rudd was founded in 1698. Justinian Brooks was founded in 1749 and and Barrow in 1780. And so we're not too kind of far behind them in terms of our own history. And we were owned by this very same family, the Wheeler family, all the way from 1854 up until 2009. And at that point, the business, you know, had fell on some hard times and it was sold to Majestic just for the value of its stock. So under 5 million pounds or like under about $6 million. And Majestic, you know, a very different business from Majestic and Majestic left us on our own. And so that was both, I think, the best thing that could happen to us and the worst thing. So we were never integrated, but no one ever, Majestic didn't invest in Lane Wheeler. And so it was more or less kind of listing along, doing about kind of 10 to 15 million pounds a year in turnover and just about breaking even. And so when Rowan and I connected in 2015, 2016, we agreed that we needed to do something with it. And so I went out with him. Our office is based out in, uh, in rural England in Suffolk. It's a beautiful space in a, in, on a farm. And two things were really, really clear from day one. We had access to the best wines in the world. So direct allocations of, you know, Rousseau and Catiar, all the first grows, VCC, Le Pen, Cheval Blanc, you name it. We had it and we had this incredibly loyal and longstanding customer base, which is not, you know, uncommon in the UK, but things just weren't progressing for the business. And so in 2016, we began a very kind of classic 
turnaround for the business to bring it back onto the map. And it's kind of been the journey that we've been on on since. So I guess to give you a sense for kind of what happened, it all starts with people. And we always say there are three parts to our Leah Wheeler family, our team, our producers, and our clients. And our first year began with a reset with the team. So getting the right people into the right roles and really establishing what our culture should be as we're building for the future, starting to rebuild this business. And that was a huge step in the right direction. So our sales grew by 36%. We went straight back up to profitability and we knew there was something worth saving. And I like to think of that year as kind of our (laughs) refounding. And then from there, we started to think of ourselves more like a a startup, a 160-year-old startup (laughs) than, than anything else. So by about 2019, we were three years into this turnaround. We'd reset our relationships with our team and then with our wine producers and then with our customers and our parent company decided to restructure. And that was amazing news for us. So I led Lee Wheeler through a sale process. And in that, we were able to connect with a private family who bought us, but we went into this from a position of strength. So they were really excited. They saw what we've been building. They were really supportive of the journey that we've been on and a love of wine and a willingness to invest. And so they bought us in 2019. And then since then, we've been kind of taking another step forward into this exciting world of fine wine. So we've expanded our team. We've been able to bring on some masters of wine into our buying team. We've relaunched our brand and we've been making some other kind of steps along the way to invest and to grow this business. Well, that's quite the journey. And with uh, hopefully some of that 160 years of history has been passed down to you <laughs> in terms of knowledge of the UK wine consumer and the UK wine market. So not being British ourselves, although I did a year of master's program in, in London, how prevalent is wine in the daily culture of the British? That's a good question. It's really, I think, very prevalent. And I think it's a, it's a market that is really interesting and distinctive. It's fiercely competitive. So it's really crowded at all ends from grocery stores to fine wine merchants like us. And so people can get wine in a huge range of places and very good wine at kind of all ends of the market. And it's also very mature. So if you just think about the history within the UK, wine's been consumed here since Roman times. <laughs> so more or less the first century. So it's a lot different than in the U.S. Uh, I think it's a much you know younger history of drinking wine relationship with it. So if we think about it in kind of you know market sizing terms, the U.K. is the second largest importer of wine in the world. Twenty percent of it from France, a little bit less from Italy, then Australia, then a mix. And estimates that I've read say about seventy percent of U.K. households buy wine regularly. And wow. so it's you know it's it's really a, a huge part of the culture here. And how does that compare to beer and spirits, I guess, which both are quite popular in the UK as well? They are. You know, I always joke, if you've been to London in the summertime, you've probably seen people spilling out of pubs with a pint in hand, enjoying, you know, drinking a beer in the sunshine. I think beer and spirits are certainly important. And we let in, I think wine is, though, you know, that's what we're mostly focused on, but there's certainly a huge beer drinking culture related to the pub culture and spirits certainly, you know, culturally relevant as well. <laughs> Is wine mostly consumed in bars and restaurants on-premise or at home, off-premise? I think it's about a 50-50 split, interestingly. But for our end of the market, so probably an important kind of qualifier in all this is that I look at the wine trade here in the UK as a tale of two markets, really. So there's the cheaper wine, higher volume type of wine, and 
that end of the market's at 70, it's about three, three quarters of the market here in the UK by volume. Just to give you a sense for what I'm talking about, the average bottle price of wine in the UK, so at this end sold, is about six pounds a bottle. Now, when you strip out the duty on this, which is two pounds, 23p, plus the packaging and all the logistics kind of costs in there, very little is going into the actual liquid. This is really, really kind of cheap, high volume wine. And that's really dominated by, you, know, you go to the grocery store to get that or Tesco, Waitrose, Sainsbury's, but Aldi, Lidl, et cetera. And those, you're competing on price and brand there. But our end of the market is much more what we consider the fine wine end of the market. So by volume, it's about a quarter, but by value, it's more like 40%. And that's our world. And I think once you're doing some research on how big is this actual market, the UK is responsible for about a third of the world's 5 billion pound fine wine trade. So a third of what's going on in the fine wine world is coming through the UK and more or less through London. So that's really, I think, the story for us and also how to just think about, you know, the importance and also the historical relevance of this market. And so you mentioned London briefly, like how much of that is geolocated around London versus other parts of the UK? That's a good question. There's a, definitely a huge concentration in and around London and the southwest of England. We, because our Lane Wheeler was founded in the region of Suffolk, so east of England. We have a strong customer base there, but a lot of things are happening in London for sure. But then there are obviously regional pockets by some of the major, major towns as well. But yeah, I think, you know, one of the ways I always think about this market really is that it is, it's mature because our customers really know so much about wine because of this history. And, you know, they've been enjoying fine wine for generations. And so there's a lot of information that's passed down generation to generation. So there's a very high level, a very high bar of wine knowledge amongst our, our customers. And it's also very relationship driven at this end of the market. So wine is sold based on, I think, a lot of our relationships with our producers have been going on for not like decades, <laughs> but like, you know, a century. So I spent some time recently looking through our company archive and the wine list there from the 1879 is the earliest prices I could find. And it shows actually on there, like what you'd pay for Chateau Latour and Chateau Lafitte and Margot. It's, it's really kind of, the history here is not kind of to be underestimated. <laughs> Those are probably in units we don't use anymore. Yeah, exactly. Shillings or who knows what. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I am curious at looking at those two segments to talk about like what is popular in terms of either regions or origin and also grape varieties. So if we were to look at that grocery store commodity level product that is, you know, 75% of the market versus that fine wine section, like what, how would you break down in terms of what is the, what is making up that in terms of actual purchases? That is a good question. I think, so our space is definitely more the fine wine. So I'm less knowledgeable about the, the grocery space that I'd love to be. But I do think that we see across the board, there's a huge love of the old world wines in the UK, all ends of the market. And I think that's, that's especially true for us. Again, I kind of go back to history on this one. You know, there's always been trade for up and down the Jean River that separates the left bank and the right bank, allowing people to take wine all the way up to the British Isles. And in 1154, Eleanor of Aquitaine, uh, which was you know part of the province that included Bordeaux, married England's King Henry. And for three centuries, Bordeaux was attached to the, the English kingdom. And so that ownership drove adoption of Bordeaux that I think of as kind of just you know, withstood the test of time. So you can find, I think, great Bordeaux at all price points in the grocery stores. I think supermarkets probably have extended much further into you know other parts of Europe and then also into the you know New Zealand, Australia, the other parts of the new world. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think it's probably not you know too dissimilar to what we see in terms of our customers' preferences. So for us... So 
yeah, diving into the fine wine space, what would you consider then particularly popular with that group in terms of regions and varieties? It is a good question. 40% of our sales are driven by Bordeaux and Burgundy. So that's, you know, and that's been coming down, but those have always been the most important regions for us. But interestingly, we've had amazing growth in South Africa over the past kind of five or six years. So we've taken our range from working with just a handful of growers to about 40, 45 producers we represent. And our five-year CAGR for sales has been 50%. So we're really happy with the growth there. We've also seen a lot of recent growth in champagne. So champagne is definitely a really important category for us. And I would say on a whole, you could say that it's very old world driven tastes and preferences compared to the American market. And then on top of that, we see I certainly see a tendency for our the UK fine wine lover to drink wines more mature, to wait a lot longer. Where in the US, I might find my friends drinking their, even their own nines and their tens from Bordeaux. I think the equivalent drinker over here is maybe starting to open up stuff from the 90s, maybe early 2000s, assuming you have the depth of the cellar there. So I think, again, you know, the cellars and habits have been passed down for generations and people have kind of maybe gotten into building up a wine cellar sooner in their wine, their potential for drinking wine. And that's been consistent. Are they able to store it for so long? Because my vision, maybe from movies or something, is like the country house where there's like a cellar dug into a like a cave cellar, or is it stored at retailers or in bond like with you guys? Uh, so I've certainly seen some beautiful old country cellars. So your dreams are true, but then also there is the vast majority of fine wine is stored in bonded warehouses here in the UK. And that is exactly how we store wine on our customers' behalf. So the way that system works, there are customers, they buy wine, what's called in bond. So they haven't yet paid the duty or the VAT on those wines. And wine merchants, like we are, we work to store that wine on our those customers' behalf and then help facilitate the, whatever the customer wants to do with that wine. And there is a huge volume and value to the wine stored under bond here in the UK. So most people are outsourcing it. And then we can help if you want to have your wine delivered or if you want to do something else with it, transfer it to another bonded warehouse or actually export it. Got it. And then looking again at both sort of like the commercial grocery store and the fine wine difference, how important is like the organic, biodynamic, sustainable kind of wine movement in the UK? I think for our client base, we see some clear generational differences. So for our core base, which is male and a more mature audience, it's not frequently mentioned or requested. So I wouldn't have, don't have a lot of customers calling and saying, can you tell me if this is organic or not? Can you tell me if it's biodynamic or not? But I think about our future customer base, which is, I would say, more diverse in all senses. They're definitely willing to be guided for it by us. And I think we actually, as the merchant that you know, representing the wine producer, have a very strong duty to be thinking about sustainability in those aspects. You know, for our producers, one thing's really clear: wine is actually a KPI for climate change, right? And our producers are deeply impacted, you know, today and increasingly so by the impacts of, of climate change. And so, being able to be more sustainable in the vineyard is, I think, one way that they're thinking about. And also in all wine production, they're able to think about how to be more sustainable for their businesses. The other thing I hear a lot from our producers is these are a lot of these are family businesses and their next generation is growing up there at the winery in and around it. And I remember speaking with Mathieu Chedronnier, who runs CVBG, whose wife, and Laurence, uh, is the winemaker and they own this Bordeaux property, Chateau Marceau. And, you know, their children... Alice and Leo are there in the vineyards running up and down amongst the vines and they just didn't feel comfortable 
using pesticides when they knew their these small kids were running around. So they actually went to become, I think, organic and then biodynamic over the past couple of years. And I hear that a lot. So again, from our producers, and I think that that's going to have a trickle down effect to our consumers. But at the end of the day, I think we have a really strong duty to do the right thing. Yeah. But do the fine wine consumers, your customers, do they sort of just assume that, you know, all the wines that they're buying from you are already sustainable or are they actually asking the question? They, it's a good question. We're not getting, we're not hearing it a lot. I wish we were. I, yeah, I wish it was more on the forefront of everyone's mind, but that's not, it certainly hasn't been a dry customer requests for organic biodynamic wines certainly has been a driver for us to be thinking about these things and prioritizing them. It's definitely more driven by wanting to do the right thing with our team and then also doing the right thing by our producers and by the planet. <laughs> cool. Interesting. Are there other trends that you're seeing with British wine consumers that we haven't discussed? So I think that there is a, our market is very much about evolution, not revolution. And so we see a lot of, you know, in the kind of grocery space, that kind of higher volume, faster moving, where, you know, 99% of the wines purchased are intended to be consumed within 24 hours. You know, interest in no and low alcohol wines, there was a whole movement towards more natural wines, et cetera. But they've been, I think, more trends than people have moved on from. Whereas our market is much, it's kind of constantly evolving and shifting, but not kind of big, fast, blown out changes. So right now I'm seeing a trend towards more a focus on wine for investment purposes and people wanting to build a wine cellar with kind of investment in mind, which is something we are not investment professionals. We can advise you on what is well-made, what will drink beautifully in the future, <laughs> you know, what we think is uh, investment in your future happiness. <laughs> but that's certainly a trend that I think we're seeing at the moment, but how long that's going to last, I'm not sure. A lot of people are hoping it's an inflation hedge. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Um, I mean, other trends you could say that there's, you know, kind of at our and there's a just a kind of growing and a wonderful thing happening within UK wine production, especially you probably hear more and more about English sparkling wine as a category. And that's something that we have taken steps to, you know, make sure we're representing a couple UK wineries, uh, sparkling wineries here on our list. So that's been an exciting one. <laughs> cool. We'll definitely talk more about that later. And then, you know, Burgundy has gone sort of crazy in terms of pricing. Are your customers looking at substitutes at all or they just keep bidding? Gosh, it does feel like the appetite for Burgundy is insatiable, I have to say. And we're definitely coming into a bind this next vintage because so little wine was made. So we're, uh, everyone's a little nervous and especially a barely, barely any Chablis. I recently had an interesting conversation with Jancis Robinson who was talking about how excited she is about Oregon Pinot. So that would certainly be an area where we're curious about, you know, is not maybe not like a replacement for Burgundy, but if you want to have some really interesting, exciting Pinot Noir, where else might you look? We find that there's no substitute, but it's certainly made Bordeaux look a lot more kind of perhaps better, one might find better value there. And so it's kind of reawakened interest in Bordeaux, funny enough. It's kind of the other big, very important fine wine region in our space. And I would also say that, although again, it's no like, like for like replacement, we're definitely trying to draw our customers' attention to Piedmont and Barolos and especially single crew Barolos and thinking kind of more about if you're interested in kind of terroir-driven region with a lot of differences by crew and by producer and vintage and 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 this is a great place to sink your teeth in. 
So yeah, no replacement, but uh, other areas to kind of get excited about. <laughs> so I'm curious on how fractured is the UK wine market? And maybe we could talk about it in two, those two lenses, the fine wine space versus the, the grocery space. So for the fine wine space, like who owns that 40% of that value proposition that's in the market, that 25% of the consumers? It is, it's still relatively fragmented, I would say. It is, say there are like a, there are relatively small number of merchants who do what we do, but it's still pretty fragmented. I would probably estimate that someone in the UK wanting to get all the wines that you're looking for for your collection, you probably need to go to between five and seven different merchants to get everything that you're looking for. And a lot of that has to do with exclusivities and access. So you get your PYCM from one place, you get your Lepin from another place, you're looking for Lepin from another place. And so there is, you really have to kind of go deep in the UK market, I think, to really get everything you're looking for here. And there are like a relatively small number of houses where you might start to build your collection, but you can't get everything from one place. You have to go to a bunch of different outlets. I think on the flip side at that kind of lower end, it is a, it's just a super competitive market and where everyone is kind of competing on price. And I'm talking about like the big grocery stores, Waitrose, Sainsbury's, number of different ones, and you know, Tesco and Aldi Lidl, all these kind of dis- grocery discounters as well. And that kind of you know, puts pressure on places like Majestic, which are wine specialty retailers, but still where you might buy wine in greater volumes to constantly be competing on price. And so I think that is a very competitive market in that space. I think we're fortunate in that people are coming to us for three reasons, not one. So they're not just coming to us to look for wines at a certain price, but they're also working with us to get wines for access to those wines and also for the quality so that we that we can offer because you know, we're sending out a buying team now for two masters of wine and two MW students who build really longstanding relationships with different producers in their regions. And they're going there every single year. They're tasting more or less every single wine we buy, even through COVID. We had, you know, samples shipped over as unsustainable as that is. So we can make sure we're tasting wines, able to provide up-to-date tasting notes and recommendations and making sure we're constantly tasting through our portfolio and understanding the nuances of a vintage, but also changes that a producer might be making and even, you know, crew by crew, wine by wine within a domain. What are we buying? And how critical to your business is the exclusivity part? Because a lot we see a lot of exclusivity in the U.S. kind of going away. Obviously, there's then allocation systems for when you get your allocation, but it's less exclusive, like especially for some of those big names that you mentioned. So it depends. For some of the big names, there certainly are exclusives. And I think that that can be a very important way for a merchant to gain market share. But we're a two-sided platform, right? And when we look at producers, what they're looking for in a UK merchant, they want help getting into the on-trade, so into restaurants, and getting their wines into the hands of a private customer. And we only do one thing. We sell to private clients. We don't sell to restaurants. We focus on doing one thing really well, not both of those things. And so for us, we don't tend to have that representation, that exclusive representation representation here in the UK, because we can't get that. And we wouldn't want to try to get that restaurant representation for those producers. So I think it is important, but it is an important component of what we do. How important is online ordering e-commerce for the wine industry in the UK? So it is, but it's been slow to be adopted across the whole the whole industry. So some of our peer group, you can't buy wine on their website and they're kind of in the tens, twenties, millions of pounds a year in turnover. <laughs> so, so you can build a pretty big business. And I have another one of my colleagues who runs a much bigger business than we have, you know, hundred billion pound plus business, and they still don't have an online ordering system. 
So it's possible to do it without a website, but it's very important for us. And our website is something we've been pouring increasing money into because I believe that we should invest in technology to do what a computer does best, to free up our people to do what people do best. And our team is at the heart of everything we do. And this is really a relationship-based business. And so we can make the website, make it really easy. You can sit on a Sunday night and go into your account online and decide what wines from your collection you want to withdraw and have down to your house in London by Tuesday for a dinner party and not have to call someone but be able to call someone when, you know, the 2021 Bordeaux campaign is going on and you're trying to decide between the left bank, right bank, Margot, Saint-Julien, get a bit more color into the campaign. We want to have a team of experts on hand to be able to advise you on that. So <laughs> a long-winded way of saying like, you know, that e-commerce is important, but we also need people as well. Right. So in the U.S., you know, uh, direct-to-consumer from winery is a pretty big channel, especially in the fine wine area. And I've always been curious, pulling Robert's line, he always says, I've always been curious. (laughs) Um, For Brits or even within the EU, can you not buy direct from the winery and have it shipped directly to you? It's a very small market at the moment. So I think the equivalent over here would be, although Brexit makes this more complicated, uh, historically, Brits would drive, you know, through the channel, under the English channel, over to France, and then load up at the cellar door, especially in southern France. And we actually see this with our, you know, southern Rhone producers in particular. This is a way that they actually sell quite a lot of wine. It's direct to consumer, but at the, the cellar, like online, UK wine consumers buying wine online directly from wine producers in France. That is not any kind of tangible part of the, or, you know, major part of the market at all. And why is that? Is that regulations? Is it the logistics of the delivery? That's a good question. I think it, probably a lot of it's driven just by historic reasons. And and so there's always been this tradition of having merchants who are the middlemen, well and truly. And we do, I think, you know, there's a kind of quality assurance, the access component and the, you know, providing value by buying wines at scale that we can provide. But on top of that, the logistics are, you know, not straightforward. And especially if you want to buy a lot of different wines across a region, across producers, across crews, et cetera, you know, we have over five to 7,000 wines that we can offer you at any given time from between 600 and a thousand producers at any given time. That's a huge breadth of wines that you wouldn't want to have to go source yourself. <laughs> so the UK market has a long history of being a trading hub for wine. How important is wine investing and trading versus consumption to the UK wine trade? That is a good question. It is, I think it all comes down to what does a customer want and making it really easy for them. And we're finding that the vast majority of our customers do a little bit of all of that. So they're buying some wine over time at any given point, may want to drink some may want to resell some and that may go and fund, you know, topping up their cellar, or maybe they need to money for school fees or need to put an addition on their house. I mean, this is, this is some case studies we've had in the past. It is for our business. I would say that the trading side of the business. So this is where in three clicks, you can take any wine in your collection with us and list it instantly for sale. And then when it's sold, you know, we take a commission and then you get the net proceeds from that sale. That's about, I would say, like a quarter, you know, give or take of our sales, maybe a bit less, maybe a bit more in any given year. And I think it's very important, healthy part of the ecosystem. But 
what's most important to us is that people are enjoying fine wine at the end of the day. So we're constantly encouraging people, open up your bottles and enjoy them, drink them. You know, a bottle of wine, four to six glasses, depending on who's pouring for a reason. You know, and when we talk to visiting our wine producers in wine country, that's really what is motivating them. It's, you know, all the agricultural practices coupled with knowing that people will be enjoying and drinking their wines, not trading it and reselling it. But that said, there's also this practical reality and sometimes that maybe at the beginning of your fine wine loving journey, you bought a lot of Bordeaux and in time you started begun to perhaps develop a preference more for Burgundy or maybe wines of the Piedmont or Tuscany or further afield. And you want to swap out a bit of that Bordeaux for something else, or maybe you want to swap out a little bit of Burgundy for something else. And it's important to us to be able to facilitate that type of activity and then ideally sell it to another one of our customers who can then enjoy that wine. So the old adage of buy two cases and sell one and drink one for free. Now in Burgundy, it's buy three bottles <laughs> and, to, and to decide how many you, you could afford to drink when the, as the prices go up. Yeah, that totally resonates still. And we do see that. So do your customers buy a lot via Impermere or is that something that's kind of phasing out? Yeah, it is. It's a huge part of what we do. So this is when we consider Ampremer selling the wine at the point at which the price is released before it's physically available, which in the U.S. I think a lot of people call this futures. And this is, I think, most widely known as a practice related to the wines when they're released in Bordeaux, each vintage. But we actually sell, this is how we sell a lot of wine in Burgundy. So again, when the prices are released, but before we physically have the wine available. Same with Italy. So right now we're selling the 18 Barolo, 19 Barbaresco, and 20 is otherwise from Piemonte. But we don't have the wine physically available yet. And we still consider it on That's a huge part of what we do. And so when those wines have either been bottled or been shipped and then arrive at our warehouse, we have automated notification that tells our customers that it's now in. And if they'd like to do something with it, they can. Otherwise, we'll continue to store it for them. You know, a state-of-the-art seller, ideal temperature, humidity, light conditions until they want to do something with it. And so some of those wines will sit there for you know, 10, 20, 50 years before anyone does anything. But we'll obviously be advising people with drinking windows for what it might be ready to drink and do you want to do something with it. Having purchased a little bit through some UK merchants in earlier vintages, it was interesting to see how different the pricing was based on the different tranches that you're being offered by different merchants for that. I was just curious if you had a high level of thinking of when you have a new customer come to you and they want to purchase that way, how do you think about where do you slot them in to your system of pricing for futures? That is such an interesting question because we actually haven't bought any since I've started been at Lane Wheeler. So for six years now, we haven't bought any to speak of Bordeaux after that first tranche of pricing. And we would, if you told us that you wanted to start a Bordeaux collection, we would do everything we can to make sure we're offering you the best possible value like any other customer really. And yeah, and I think for us, the, our kind of mission is to connect the right people with the right wines and to really be a place where you can, at any part in your fine wine journey, you can get on board with us. If you don't know anything or you're just starting out and you know a ton, but you're either way, you're just starting out. We're here to help and be a guide through to if you actually aren't buying a lot of wine, you have probably more than you would be able to drink in a lifetime advising you what to do here. I think we, one of the things that we did early on when I joined was, now this is going to sound totally unradical to you guys, but it was radical in England, which was to move to sell every single wine by the single bottle. No one else does that. And that sounds like a crazy thing. Like, why can't you buy it by the single bottle? But everything is sold by the case. But we realized that for fine 
you know, for the finest wines that are selling at 500,000 pounds a bottle, that's a very big barrier if you have to buy a full case of that, a case of six or even 12 bottles to get started. And so we decided that by selling everything by the single bottle, it democratized a bit more. At least it made it, it lowered the hurdle. It's probably a better way to explain it, to say it. it lowered the hurdle to get started in buying fine wine and then also help people buy, test into a lot of different wines so buy one bottle of a bunch of different things, try them and see what you like, and then go back for more later on rather than having to commit to a case of something. So somewhat related, how has Brexit impacted wine trading in the UK or maybe in the future? Mm. So Brexit, going into Brexit, which is obviously delayed, was a big distraction because there was so much uncertainty about how it would impact our ability to bring wines in as like the physical movement of the goods coupled with the paperwork and other potential disruptions. And what we have found post-Brexit is that it is a kind of long tail of pain, but nothing that has stopped us from moving forward in trading. So there's a lot more paperwork. There can be more delays. With that paperwork comes the expense of doing that paperwork and a lot more complexity and in particular, it's made hosting tastings here and bringing in samples a lot more difficult. So that's probably the one area that has suffered the most. But for the most part, it hasn't stopped anything. It's just made it more difficult and more onerous. So the UK is unique in that it shaped how certain wines are even made. I'm thinking Port and Sherry and Madeira. Given those legacies and those connections to those wines, how important are those in the UK market today? Believe it or not, we do still sell some Madeira <laughs> and some Sherry. I would say, though, of those three you mentioned, Port is probably like the most relevant of one of those more historic kind of wines. Funny enough, so I tend to come across Port in more traditional settings and slightly more formal occasions, but it is definitely still like on the table from time to time. I, I recently had a delicious bottle of Quinto Novales 1974 Colleta, their old Tawny Park. We were at Lynchbaj for a for lunch, not even dinner, for lunch. And that came around the very, it was a fabulous. Um, so it's really not like a key driver in our market, but it like there's a there's a moment in a meal for port and you're like, you better have it <laughs> and a good one. And in the, you know, in a vintage year, we'll sell, we'll sell a fair amount, but it's, it's very kind of vintage. But funny enough, it's probably worth mentioning too, that like for Portugal, we see even like adaptation there and, and the evolution of that market. We actually sell a lot of dry reds from Portugal. So probably the most famous name being Casa Farinha's Barcavea, for example. So very expensive Portuguese wine. <laughs> so. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was just joking because I was, you know, with the MW entrance exam, they asked about a pale cream sherry, which I couldn't even find in the U.S. And then they asked about, so I had to write a dry tasting note for it. And they asked, like, who's the target market? And I'm like, old British white women? And it's like, and I mean, I guess maybe that's, uh, but I wasn't sure, like, how common is sherry there, given that, like, you know, it essentially was in everybody's cupboard, essentially. It's not something that people are banging out a door for, at any rate. Like, poor, and I'll use, I wouldn't, it's not not fortified, but so turn as well. Like these sweeter wines with a rich tradition, no pun intended, they continue to be important. But Sherry and Madeira are certainly less so and not a key part of our market. And I think for our future consumers, not something we're anticipating being a huge part. So outside of formal settings, would you also say that it's potentially more viable in a fine dining setting? So maybe an on-premise selection versus uh, by uh, off-premise to take home and drink at your house? Yeah, definitely. And also seasonal. So port's really important at Christmas time here. And Christmas is a huge deal in the UK market with increased emphasis on the, you know, making sure you have some champagne, some sparkling wine, making sure you have the right whites, the right reds, the port and 
the so turn and also spirits at the end. I mean, it, it, people go all out and it's a really lovely, I think, way to, to celebrate the holiday and open up some stuff that you might not always throughout the year. When you think about port and kind of a you know cold winter's night and also keeping in mind it gets dark here in the, the wintertime around, you know, 4, 4.30 p.m. <laughs> so you, you can imagine being hungry down by a fire with a, a nice glass of port. No bad thing. So we talked a little bit about English wine earlier and particularly sparkling wine. Have the Brits really taken to domestic bubbly? Yeah, it's been really exciting to watch. And we certainly at home have English sparkling wine from time to time. I think that, you know, one way to think about it is in terms of geography and geology. So the kind of thesis for English sparkling wine is that, you know, for some plots of land here in the UK, there's the same vein of chalk runs from Champagne under the English Channel over to England. So the likes of Hambleton Vineyard, that's they've done geologic studies and shown that that's the case. They've also planted the same grapes that you'd find in Champagne, so Pinot Meunier, Pinot Noir, and Chardonnay. And then global warming is actually having a tangible impact on the ripening, uh, a positive impact in this case on how these grapes ripen. And then in the case of you know, again, Hamilton, as an example, they brought over a champagne winemaker. So I think all of these things mean that there's a higher quality wine being made here. And I think that's really contributed to the growth in the English sparkling market. So there are tons and tons of wineries cropping up all the time, trying to you know take advantage of these conditions and also the growing market and you know this growing kind of domestic appetite for English sparkling wine, which doesn't have the same ring to it as champagne, I have to say. British bubbles. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. So does it compete with champagne in the UK or does it compete against other sparkling wines? I know at least when they come here to the US, they're on the pricier side, they're more expensive and almost the same price as champagne. So I don't know if that's true in the UK or not. They're definitely on the pricier side here too. That's for sure. And I think it's as a category, it's trying to benchmark more against or kind of compete with champagne. I personally, I think this is how we've talked to our customers about it. Think of it as not competing with champagne, but just something different. And since it is, a lot of these producers, you know, I've been around for 10, 20 years, not centuries like the champagne houses, I frequently will bring a bottle to a a friend's house as an exciting new thing to try. But for, I think champagne is such a strong, soft brand, nothing can really top that. So I guess the kind of summary would be that English sparkling wine is growing the overall pie for sparkling wine, not diminishing champagne's foothold on it so to speak. And not taking from a cava or prosecco or something like that. Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think cava and prosecco, to your point about pricing, are always going to be so much cheaper than English sparkling wine that, you know, they're not really, it's not really replacing either either end. But to give you a sense for our own business, we now uh, carry four different English sparkling wine producers. So Night Timber, Hamilton, Rathfinney, and Whiston. And we're considering adding like one or two more. But as a percentage of our sales, it's like less than half a percent. But champagne is, you know, pushing kind of 10% and growing. So very different in terms of the economic or commercial implications. So more a question for fun, I guess. But if I were in the UK and walked into your store or went on your website, I guess, how would I find the most outstanding wines? I think it all comes back to people. So I wish we had a retail store we aspire to in the future. Okay. (laughs) We've had pop-ups in the past, but it's really about getting in touch with one of our team of, you know, experts. So we have a dedicated team of fine wine advisors who are on hand at any time to give you a hand with our range and they're tasting weekly and they're learning from our buying team. 
all the time about what's in our range. And they would probably start with, what are you after? <laughs> yeah, are you looking for something to drink now, something to drink in the future? Do you have any preferences? And kind of walk you through a couple key questions to get to a good recommendation. I think the fun thing about wine is that so much of it's done through relationships. So we'd probably also say, do you want to go get a coffee? or want to go get a glass of wine? <laughs> Taste some stuff, find out a bit more. So we'd like to wrap up every episode on a personal note. And we are curious, what was the most memorable wine you drank in the last year? And who did you drink it with? That is such a hard question. <laughs> I So I, I feel like I've been really lucky to drink a lot of really special kind of spectacular wow bottles of wine. And at this stage in my enjoyment of wine, I'm now looking to be surprised and also for a story. And I was rummaging through our office and I found this like really peculiarly shaped bottle from South Africa. And it was a white wine, the beautiful wax top. And so I asked our one of our buyers, Robbie, who really built our South Africa collection. He spends a couple of weeks a year there. It's a couple of weeks each year there. And he's like, you have to try this wine. It's called Luke's, L-U-U-K-S. It was the 2020 vintage. And the name, I said, okay, but like, just tell me like who made it and what's the grape? <laughs> it's this weird bottle. It looks like a pyramid. He's like, so it's Chardonnay and it's made by Peter Valser who runs Blank Bottle. And he called it Luke's because they were, as they were getting into Chardonnay, they wanted to experiment with aging it in oak barrels. And it felt like such a wild and crazy thing for the South African producer to buy a fancy French oak barrel. They're like, this is very luxurious. And so they named the barrel Luke's. They made one barrel of this wine, then they named the wine Luke's. And sure enough, it was just this, I opened it with my husband at the end of a long work week over homemade pizza, not, you know, the ideal Chardonnay combo, but absolutely fabulous and certainly a memorable bottle. So keep an eye out for it. (laughs) It's a nice, it's a cool one. Well, we want to thank you for sharing all this knowledge about the UK wine market and Lane Wheeler. We appreciate your time and insights. Thank you, guys. Great to connect. Cheers. And don't forget, you can become a patron of X Chateau by visiting patreon.com slash X Chateau if you'd like to support us to continue delivering content that the wine industry needs. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.